may be seated. Well, with uh, Pastor away for the week, I'm pinch hitting. Um, continuing in Romans, uh, we're going to uh, look at a particular aspect of Romans. Um, but it feels good to be back in the pulpit. I've had a good rest, and I'm looking forward to uh, getting more involved again in the weeks ahead. Um, God sent us Romans, uh, this letter, uh, that addresses every aspect of our salvation. It's introduced by his statement that God gave him the gospel to pass on. We're going to read that in Romans chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. And I want to stress the point that Paul said he, uh, he has an obligation to others. He has a debt to others. God commanded him to go and preach the gospel. He feels he has a debt to others, and he wants to execute that debt by preaching the gospel, sharing the faith of Christ, leading others to salvation. So let's look at uh, verses 14 to 17. I'm debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that in, are in Rome also. Now, he had been a lot of places already, and he's looking forward to the next stop. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What a wonderful statement. That's the thesis of Paul's letter. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why not? It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray and we'll get into the rest of the message. Father, please bless us tonight. Uh, help me, Lord, to convey the truth of your word uh, without any additions to it. Help us to hear the truth of your word uh, without any confusion. And may Jesus Christ be glorified in everything we say and do, for it's in his name we ask it. Amen. By the way, what an amazing thought that we have the power to glorify our Savior by our behavior, by our words, by our deeds. Um, that's not part of the message. The rest of this letter, as we are discovering in Pastor Kyle's verse-by-verse -verse study on Wednesday nights, very intensive study, you will not get better education in the uh, letter to the Romans than you're getting on Wednesday nights right here. Um, Romans is a masterful exposition by the apostle that explains and defends the gospel of Christ, what it is, why we need it, who needs it, and how to share it. Uh, so in Pastor Kyle's absence tonight, I'm going to focus just on one very important aspect. Our position in the world as lost sinners and God's provision for us in Christ. We begin with a brief overview to establish the context for this message. Now, by now you should have the context pretty much set in your minds, but this is such an important book, I want to just briefly mention again what the whole framework is of Romans before we look specifically at this one subject. Paul begins by presenting the world as a dark and sinful place, utterly corrupted by the evil God of this world. Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection 
was necessary to translate us from the doomed kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his eternal light. The letter goes on to explain that we may be adopted into the family of God by the grace of God and made joint heirs or equals with Jesus Christ. And again, just stop and think about what I've just said. That you and I, through our salvation and through our ultimate glorification when we pass on to be with the Lord, will be equals with Jesus Christ. Joint heirs, everything he has, you and I have, and not one of us here has done the slightest little thing to deserve it. But it's all ours because we said yes to God and bowed the knee to Jesus. Since we are a new creation in Christ, we present ourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead, claiming no purpose in this life. At least we shouldn't claim any purpose in this life, no, life, no personal agenda, no aims or ambitions outside of his will for us. And this doesn't mean that we sweat in our service to God, full of good intentions. God doesn't want our sweat and he doesn't want our good intentions. He wants us. When God has us completely yielded to him, we will be empowered to do his will as we obey him, not out of fear, but because we delight to please him. That's the key to living the joyful Christian life. We don't serve him because it's a burden, because, oh, I've got to just live this difficult life as a Christian, and all those cool things I used to do I can't do anymore. That is guarantees your defeat, your spiritual defeat. But if you flip the coin and decide that you're going to live for God because you delight in pleasing him, just the thought that I, as an individual, sinful person, can bring joy to the heart of the creator of the universe is a thought so spectacular that who wouldn't want to try and do that? Now, we fail constantly, but, you know, God appreciates if we just try, just make the effort to delight him. Ultimately, and incredibly, God wants to fellowship with us. He wants, he wants to enjoy our company. His dear children, saved by him, adopted by him, loved by him, empowered by him, and glorified by him. We become one with him, and with all that he has when his spirit comes to live in us at the time of our spiritual rebirth. Yet, it is possible to live a defeated life if we fail to recognize the fact that he owns us. God paid a great price for us. He owns us, body, soul, and spirit. And any time you feel resentful about serving God, it's because you just don't get it. He owns us. And if you don't like the idea of being owned, well, it's too late for us. We're saved. We can't go anywhere else but heaven. But if you're unsaved and you resist salvation because you don't like the idea of being owned, well, then you have an alternative place to go, and that's called hell, and it's your choice. But if you've turned away from that choice, then just be happy about the fact that, yeah, he owns me, and it's great. What do you want me to do next, Lord? If we do not give the Holy Spirit absolute authority over us, he can be present in us, but not powerful in us. Becoming one with God also means that we become one with other Christians. By the way, all these themes are addressed in the book of Romans. It's a just a magnificent treatise. 
we discover that we cannot walk alone as individual believers in Christ. And here is uh, at the back of Romans, he spends two chapters talking about the body of Christ and the way we interact in the body of Christ, and it's wonderful. As individual believers in Christ, we lay aside our individualism and contribute to the growth of the body of Christ. Here, in the body, in a body like this, the things I do not know, others know. The tears I do not weep, others will weep. The prayers I neglect, others will pray. The wisdom I seek is found in others. The love and compassion and joy and generosity that may be lacking in me is found in others, made up by my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, this one body. And soon I find that the things which are lacking in me are becoming part of me through life in this body. If I'll just love my brothers and sisters and be here every chance I get and interact with them and fellowship with them, we rub off on each other and we're all strengthened and we grow up together into the body of Christ and into the glory of his presence. He has a chapter-by-chapter chapter outline of Romans that provides further helpful context. Um, if we are to be effectively present, uh, sorry, if we are to effectively present Christ to others, we must first understand who we are in him, in him and Romans lays it out perfectly. Chapters 1 to 3, we know this, a vivid description of our sinfulness, underlining our need for salvation. Chapters 4 and 5, salvation is available by faith alone, never by our own merit or good works. Chapter 6, steps to holiness, true holiness, are to know our need, to understand our salvation, to appreciate the necessity of our submission to God, and to grow in the grace and knowledge of him. All that is covered in that one remarkable chapter. Chapter 7, our spiritual growth is a contradiction. As you grow spiritually, you become more aware of how corrupt you are. You'd think that as I grow holier and closer to God, I just become a better person, and you do, but you also become very much aware of what a rotten person you are. As you come closer to the light, your sins, your imperfections are exposed by that very light. And of course, that should drive you to your knees to seek more of him. When we seek answers in ourselves, by ourselves, we find only more corruption because sin is an expression of who we are without Christ. This discovery is a turning point for each of us. We, will we refuse to acknowledge who we are and what we are, or will we humbly admit that we are totally dependent on God and live accordingly? And I think most of us here probably choose the latter. We'll humbly admit that we are totally dependent on God. Chapter 8, we fully discover our purpose, our power, and the extent of God's extraordinary provision for us in Christ. When we recognize our life is not about us, it's all about him, by him, for him, and with him. That's the message of Romans chapter 8. Chapters 9 to 11, a parenthetical aside to Jewish believers, 
chapter 12, keys to the outworking of all that God has provided for us. And those magnificent first two verses, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's an amazing statement that is. And then we, in chapter 13, have an exhortation to right living in the world. Chapters 14 and 15, exhortation to right living in the body of Christ. And chapter 16, all the salutations, a lot of names. Romans is extraordinary in that kind of ending. Paul, when he finishes his letters, usually does say, give my regards to so-and-so. At the end of Romans, it's a bunch of people he mentions by name. And I don't know if you think of it when you read those names. Wonder what they were like. Wonder how they got saved. Wonder what kind of lives they lived. I wonder what, how they died. I wonder what they're doing now in heaven. I wonder what it's going to be like when I see them one day. They're real people who really did live here, and they are really living there, and we will get together soon. So in tonight's message, we're going to briefly highlight only our position in the world and God's provision in Christ. The key, our position in the world, that makes all of God's glories available to all sin-corrupted mankind is first for sinners to be confronted by their sins and then to understand the consequence of their sinfulness. We don't appreciate our need for salvation until we understand how lost we are. Um, we've got to be lost first before we can be found. There's a wonderful picture I've mentioned before. And in fact, the, I was reminded of it because the other day I was looking at a uh, YouTube video of uh, Ray Comfort, and he used this analogy. And I said, no, I used that one first, but apparently he did. Um, about the parachute. You know, if you're in a plane and uh, you've just boarded the plane, those narrow little cramped seats, hard, uncomfortable, you're in a row that's three deep and you've got two very big, large people on either side of you and you're kind of squashed in the middle. And then they come around and say, here's this bulky parachute, please strap it on uh, because for your own safety. Everybody on that plane would complain. No, I'm already uncomfortable. Now you want me to travel with this big thing stuck on my back? For hours I'm going to be jammed in the seat? Thank you, take it away. Uh, and then you, the plane takes off and you're at 30,000 feet, relaxing as much as it's possible in that atmosphere, and suddenly there's a loud bang and a, loud, a flash of flames across the windows, as happened to me once at 30,000 feet, and you realize, I'm going to die. The plane is on fire, an engine has exploded, and we're doomed. And the pilot comes on and he says, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to be handing out parachutes. Raise your hand if you want a parachute. Everybody, yes, please, I'll take the parachute. Well, that's how salvation works. Soul winning. When you go to somebody and present Jesus to them, if they don't realize they need a parachute, they're not going to be interested. But if they realize their precarious condition, they are doomed to spell an eternity in a place called hell where they will suffer torment and there's no do-overs. That's, to me, the most horrifying aspect of hell is to be there 
Know that it's by your choice that you're there, and know that you're never, ever going to escape. Can you think of anything more horrifying than that? And every time we go out into the street, every person we meet at our jobs, at a restaurant, our neighbors, they are doomed dead people. They are doomed to spend an eternity in hell if they don't have Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we have the answer for them. We have the words of eternal life. And so, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 320, establishes our lost inheritance and the depths of our spiritual poverty. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, where God lays it out, just in case we forget how rotten we are. He's speaking here of unsaved people. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes, and of course that's why they are sinners. They don't fear God, and they just do what they please, just as we did at one stage in our lives. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. An important verse for religious people who are proud of their religious uh, life. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all of them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful statement that is. Um, I went past, I got carried away there, went past uh, a little too far, but um, let's see, let's look at Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. It talks there about the same subject. Second Corinthians chapter 4, let me get it right this time, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Lost, lost forever in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And that thought is repeated in Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you hath he quickened, he says, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that thou worketh in the children of disobedience. Both times it talks about the fact that if you're not saved, you're a walking dead person. I'm sure that's where Hollywood scriptwriters get the ideas of zombies from. Uh, zombie apocalypse, I think, is one title I saw once. But zombies are walking dead people, and that's who we live amongst. Uh, it, it should break your heart to think about it. And we have the words of eternal life. So let's look at that provision, God's provision in Christ. The so-called Romans Road is a useful summary of the way to present our need for salvation and how to lay hold of it in Jesus Christ. We are all guilty. We've already seen Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. <coughs> and notice 
in answer to people who talk about the fact that I, I'm pretty good, uh, I think God would be pleased with me. I mean, I try hard and I, I don't do bad stuff. And Romans 3.23 tells us what the standard is. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God if you are crazy enough to think that you measure up to the glory of God then yes, if you did, you could get into heaven. But if you fall short of the glory of God, you're doomed. So don't tell me what a good life you lead. If you're not equally glorious with God, you cannot be where God is. And 3.24 tells us the remedy. Romans 3 and verse 24. I can find my place again, but there it is. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in us in Christ Jesus. Notice that wonderful little word, free. It's free. It's free in the sense that it doesn't cost you any hard work and it doesn't cost you any money. But it will cost you something your whole life. If your attitude at salvation is that you know you are giving your life to God because he paid the price for you and he's bought you and your life is not your own, you'll have a very fruitful Christian life from then onwards. The trouble is most Christians think they own themselves, even though they saved. Yeah, but I've, I've got a life to lead. I, there's things I need to do and I, some things I want to do. And um, I'll just, you know, I'll... I'll live a good life, I won't do anything too bad, but I want to follow my priorities. That's a terrible way for a Christian to live. Our Creator's impulse towards His creation is not to destroy it, but to rescue it. Romans 5.8 But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we, yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Wonderful statement. How do I know God loves me? He died for me. If we will not yield, though, there is a price to pay for our alienation from God. Look at chapter 6. If you've memorized nothing else, and by the way, every Christian, whether you consider yourself a soul winner or not, although all of us should consider ourselves soul winners, but if you make a special exception for yourself, at the very least, you should memorize these verses. Romans chapter 6, verses 21 to 23. What fruit had ye in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In that one verse, you have the entire gospel. The wages that pay for your sin is death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God in hell. That's what every sinner earns by his sin. But the gift of God, it's a gift. You can't buy it. You can't fake it, you can't steal it, it's a gift. You have to receive it like any gift with gratitude and open it up for you. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the entire gospel right there. 
You can lead someone to Christ on the strength of that one verse. If you explain it to them, it's in two parts. The first part is your penalty. The second part is your deliverance. All because of God's generous nature and his deep, deep love for us. On the other hand, our corruption is so deep and God's salvation is so great that we got to understand we can never earn it or deserve it. And this is why God's remedy is not that we should work for it and so justify ourselves, but that he has done all the necessary work and invites us to receive his priceless salvation as a gift simply by asking for it. The full context is found in Romans chapter 10, verses 6 to 13. Romans 10, 6 to 13. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thy heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above? Who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up again from the dead? There is no work you can do. It doesn't pay to try and do what they did in Nimrod's day and build a tower up to heaven. You'll never make it. And it doesn't pay to go into the depths of the ocean and try and find salvation there and bring it up to the surface. You'll never make it. It's impossible. There's no amount of work and there's no amount of pretend holiness that comes to you because you wear special clothes to church or a special uniform and you behave in special ways and you have, you can tell I'm a sinner because I've got a brown-covered Bible. If I was really holy, I'd have a really big, big Bible and be black and I'd carry it always tucked under my arm just so that everybody knew what a holy person I am. Now, that kind of approach doesn't impress God at all. It might impress people. God's not impressed. And he tells us why here. What saith it? Verse 8. The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There's no question about your salvation if you'll do this. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth, con mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then if you want to memorize just one verse, do 10.13, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's all it takes to be saved. Call upon him. Ask him to save you, and he will save you. Joel 2.32, uh, talks about an outpouring of God's Spirit when those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's a prophecy repeated by Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.21, when people gather to find out what's going on. And he says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. The wonderful thing is when Joel prophesied it, he didn't understand what he was talking about. We can read it now and know exactly what he's talking about. I'm going to pour my spirit out and people can receive my spirit. In the Old Testament, nobody could have the spirit of God indwelling them. In the New Testament, every child of God has the spirit of God indwelling them. We, when you read the Old Testament and you see all their sinfulness, do you realize that we have absolutely no excuse to believe the way they did? Because not one of them 
had the Spirit residing in them. But every one of us here, from the youngest Christian to the oldest gray-haired Christian, has the Spirit of the living God in them. What a wonderful thought that is. It's also intimidating because it means we don't have an excuse. Um, so, what's our responsibility? And we close with this idea. Having freely received such a great salvation, God expects us not to hide it under a basket, but to let it shine. Let it shine wherever you go and seek opportunity every day. You, you're always meeting people that you can witness to. The gospel is the only hope of mankind and the urgency of sharing the gospel is underlined by our Savior who declared his purpose. He said in Luke 19 verse 10, my purpose is to seek and to save the lost. Well, if that's his purpose, it probably should be our purpose too. At the start of his ministry, he declared, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel. And each of us who are his children have been anointed to do the same thing. We have his Spirit in us, and his Spirit in us has anointed us to preach the gospel. It doesn't have to be formally from behind a pulpit. You just preach it wherever you are, every day, to those you come in contact with. When he called his disciples, he told them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, which begs the question, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, are you a fisher of men and women? Uh, and if not, why not? And as he departed from this world, the risen Jesus Christ instructed his disciples Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. Everybody. Now more than ever, as evil is unveiled everywhere, we must go and tell. And now more than ever is not the time to be timid or lazy, but to boldly proclaim to anyone and everyone who will listen that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Like Paul, we owe a debt to both God and man to share the gospel. And you have the perfect tool to help you in the next few weeks. You've got a nice, well-designed card, and you can take a few of those and go to your neighbor or to someone at the office and say, I'd like to invite you to come to our church for Easter Sunday. It's a great church. You'll love it. And by the way, have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? Let me tell you how. And who knows where that conversation may lead. It's 8 o'clock and it's time to go home. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much.